You're listening to Featured First, and this is Bristol Icons. Yes, this is indeed Bristol Icons, and we have here in the uh, studio Ray, who's come in from the City Museum and Art Gallery. Welcome to the studio. Thanks very much. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Um, so, what, what do you do at the uh, museum? Uh, my job is uh, entitled Collections Manager, which nobody knows what that means, but um, <laughs> what uh, in reality it means I do is I manage the team of curators uh, that work across the whole museum's uh, gallery's service. So we not only run the City Museum, but also... Uh, Red Lodge, Georgian House, the Industrial Museum that's just closed, and the Blaze Museum on the edge of the city. Right. So uh, and they're, they're all um, owned by the City Council, that's right? They are all run by the City Council, that's right, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so what sort, of, um, what sort of exhibits do you have at the uh, City Museum on the Triangle, then? Well, I'd hope all your listeners have already been in and seen the City Museum, because it's so close to the university, of course, but people should be popping in there all the time. But uh, it's a kaleidoscopic museum, that's the way we refer to it, but um, it's a mixture of different collections, um, largely through historic accidents that's brought together the fine art that we have, um, the decorative arts, the geology and natural history, uh, the archaeology and ancient Egyptian material, so a real mixture. Mm. So stuff from all over the world that somehow found its way to Bristol. That's correct, yeah. And uh, I imagine that uh, some of those artefacts must have had quite interesting journeys coming from such long distances. Yes, I mean, some of our earliest pieces date uh, back, um, were collected probably in the early 19th century. The museum service itself began life in the 1820s, and so some of our earliest objects date from that sort of time. Some of local interest, and at the time um, people were out there collecting across the world and exploring the world and bringing back objects and artefacts and um, the curators of the early museum were also asking people who went out to these places to bring back interesting things for them and even commissioning sea captains on uh, voyages to bring back artefacts to the museum at that time. Mm. So it was a, it was a combination of uh, private collections and commissioned collections that uh, brought all those uh, things to the City. Yes, yes. I mean, the, the actual early history of the museum is that um, it was uh, the Bristol Institution. It was the Museum of the Bristol Institution. So it was the great and good of the city who set up um, uh, this society, but also established a museum as part of that. And originally that was in a building that's now at the bottom of, well, was then at the bottom of Park Street, but is now the Freemasons building. So it's behind the council house. Um, lovely building there. And uh, it was established then, and uh, largely natural history and geology artifacts were collected. In fact, the early curators of the museum were mainly geologists and it had a pioneering role in developing geology as a science and collecting um, fantastic fossils from the south coast of this country as well as from further afield. Hmm. So the, the early beginnings were in a slightly different location. Um, so when was the uh, current building brought into use as a museum? Well actually there's another building in between in that um, when the, the museum started, to say, in the 1820s at the bottom of Park Street, it then in the 1870s moved into what's now Brown's Restaurant, next door to what we now know as the Museum and Art Gallery. So that became a museum at the top of Park Street, on the triangle there, full of um, geology and natural history, and also had a library, the central library in there at one point. Um, and then the Wills family, who um, I'm sure you're familiar with in the city, who seem to have uh, founded so many things, helped fund, in fact fully funded, the construction of an art gallery next to that Natural Science Museum. So there were two buildings. 1905 was when the new Museum and Art Gallery opened next to uh, the old uh, museum. 
And the new one was mainly art, but it did have antiquities in. So it had things like suits of armour and bits of archaeology and uh, material from around the world. So they complemented each other and were next to each other um, right through until 1940. And both were bombed in the Blitz, Bristol Blitz. And as a consequence, the material that was in the old museum, which was most badly damaged, was moved out and they were amalgamated together. And uh, the old museum was initially sold off to the university, where it was the university refectory for very many years. In fact, when I was an undergraduate here, I used to eat my baked beans and sausages <laughs> myself. So, uh, <laughs> um, I was wondering if I could ask you, you mentioned earlier that you have uh, various artefacts uh, that come from abroad. Um, and not so long ago, I remember there was, um, there was a recent news item with... Um, um, museums from the country of the the artifact, the the original uh, origin of of that artifact. Mm-hmm. Museums from that country were asking for it back. That um, I can't remember what museum it was, but um, a museum in Britain was holding pieces of uh, like very valuable pieces from another country, and they'd been asked back. I was wondering if I could ask your opinion on that. Like, <laughs> should we keep them, or you know, do they? Do they belong to the people who originally had them? Straight to the nitty-gritty question. (laughs) The the most famous example, of course, is the Elgin Marbles Mm. in in, uh, the British Museum. Mm. And the British Museum is not returning, or doesn't plan to at the moment, to return them to Greece, to Athens. Whereas Athens are going ahead and and have a museum where they'd like to rehouse them. Right. Um, It's a very thorny question. And um, many people are nervous about it because they think it's the thin end of the wedge and if you start to return items to, to other countries, where do you stop? Okay. And do you just end up mm. with a museum of Bristol artefacts and, and perhaps then you return some to Bedminster and some <laughs> to Bishopstone, I don't know. And, and where, do, where does it end? Um, we want to consider every possible um, instance and its own merits. And mm. actually just this year we have returned material to Australia. Okay. Um, a very particular instance that um, human remains are being treated rather separately to actual museum artefacts. So uh, the Australian government has been working with the um, uh, native peoples in Australia to approach certainly this country and other countries in, in Western Europe to try and have human remains returned to their country of origin. And we were very happy to go along with that. We knew where the remains were going. We felt it was right that the human remains were, were returned. Mm. And most museums in the country are taking that line. Right. Mm. I suppose, obviously, you also have to be careful of someone saying, hey, that's ours, give it back. I mean, you've you got to kind of verify that and make sure Absolutely that right, yes. That's, that's really key to it. You know, mm. the, who do you actually give these things back to and, and what real claim do they have upon them? And uh, that can go back even any, a short distance. If something was given to us just um, 100 years ago, and someone claims it back even from this country and says, mm. you know, my ancestor didn't really want to give it to you. <laughs> um, you know, how do they, what claim yeah. do they actually have on yeah. it? Should it be their brothers, uncles, nephews, or whoever who, who mm. should claim it? So it's a very complex issue. Uh, and that's why people do, you know, it does, it does get very complicated and the debate about it seems mm. to continue forever mm. in different ways. And presumably if you were to release something back to whoever, then you'd obviously need some sort of surety that is going to be looked after. Well, that's part of the debate, and, and museums used to say that, but in recent years uh, that's changed somewhat, and, and particularly through an example in Scotland where there was a shirt from Native North American, and uh, that was returned. And prior to that, mostly museums had said, if you're going to have this object back, then please give us assurance that it's kept in a you know, lovely museum under correct conditions so it doesn't deteriorate. But in that instance, it was given back to the Native people, saying, you, know, you can do with it as you wish, and mm. if you want to put it back... 
uh, or even bury it or whatever. You know, that's your mm. concern, and we're happy that you're the right people to receive it. But we didn't. That particular museum said they didn't feel they should be involved in that decision. Mm. Once they'd handed it back, it was the right of those people to decide what to do with it. So again, that's a controversial area within museums as to whether that's right or wrong. And again, largely it depends upon the individual instance. I think mm. you know, all the factors to be considered. So with regard to the uh, city museums collections, have, <laughs> have you had any um, discussions like that regarding some of the artefacts held there? And imagine with things from all over the globe, uh, in, as in many um, museums in Britain, where you've got collectors gone out, particularly uh, Edwardian, Victorian mm -hmm. era, um, that uh, there's going to be quite a lot that someone out there might want to have back. Potentially, but I mean, we have had certain approaches at times about artefacts, and um, usually that's been just um, finding out what we have that might be relevant to those people. Mm -hmm. And we've been very happy to tell people, you know, we want more people to use our collections, to be aware of what we have, to understand them and make um, good use of them. Um, so we're very happy to tell people from whatever country what we do hold. Um, so far we've had very little, um, pe many people coming forward saying we would like to actually have these items returned. Nothing um, serious as such at the moment, but it's, it's possible any day that something like that could happen. Hmm. So, what if say that were to happen? What would you be most, what would you be most sad to see go? What what are the the centerpieces <laughs> of the permanent connection as it currently stands? Well, I think that's very hard to answer, mm -hmm. to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, we have such a big collection. We have, we think we have. Um, well, we tend to tell people we have one and three three quarter million artifacts in the service as a whole. Because, of course, what you see on the public side is really the tip of the iceberg. Mm. We couldn't display everything we have. Some of it is actually research material rather than display material anyway. Um, so it's there for people to use behind the scenes. So to choose what the, you know, the peaches are from that collection is very mm. difficult and very subjective. Um, mm. I mean, my own particular background is actually in natural history. So uh, one of our prized exhibits in natural history is Alfred the Gorilla who has you know, a particular fondness in uh, uh, many grandparents' hearts in Bristol, people of that age, uh, who may remember him in the zoo. You know, he died in 1948 in Bristol Zoo, okay. and at the time he was the longest-lived gorilla in captivity anywhere in the world. You know, he's a real success. And uh, he has a fantastic story. You know, he, was, he was brought from Africa where it seems that uh, his parents were shot, and then he was uh, traded into Europe um, through animal traders, bought by the zoo, who were then pioneering how to look after great apes in a better way and were very successful. And uh, he was there during the war period when uh, the American troops were stationed in Bristol and they all sent postcards back stateside of, of him. So he became one of the most famous animals yeah. in the world in the 1940s. He's, mm. And then he's, um, uh, his story continues, actually. He, had, um, he was stolen during University Rag Week. Uh, in the 1950s. Recently? Oh, in the 50s. Stolen in inverted commas. Oh, OK. A, but uh, he disappeared. Right. And uh, what a large... Uh, he must have walked somewhere in Clifton in, a, in some uh, um, spilt white paint. <laughs> large white footprints appeared in Clifton going back over the wall of the zoo. <laughs> and then he magically reappeared back in the museum later on. So the story goes. Oh, OK. Yeah. Did he have white paint on his feet? <laughs> oh, I think he'd washed very well. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> OK, so th that's your permanent collection and uh, one of the many highlights from it, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I, n I notice that from time to time you have uh, visiting exhibitions as well. Uh, would you like to say something about those? Yeah, sure. We, we do have a very regular programme of temporary exhibitions. And um, 
we have some which are sort of fixtures within the program so just opening this saturday is the wildlife photographer of the year exhibition which is a very very popular exhibition with people in bristol fantastic photographs of wildlife and uh, we follow that in the new year with um, a, a program an exhibition um, which is part of a program of exhibitions we've been running with the national gallery so a partnership between their collections and our own and also with the lang collection in newcastle upon tyne so each year, an exhibition is put together that uses fantastic paintings from the National Gallery, brings them out into the provinces. Uh, we add one or two in of our own collection, so does Newcastle. And it starts its um, tour during that year here in Bristol, then it goes to Newcastle, and then it ends up at the National Gallery. And we've doing, been doing that for several years now, and we've still got funding to do that for another year or two. Um, and that's been, again, incredibly successful. And uh, it's a, there's some fantastic pieces, which normally you'd have to go to London to see, which you can just see here on our own doorstep. Mm. Is that quite an unusual situation to have a, a triangular agreement like that? I mean, I've seen exhibitions where artefacts have been moved from one... From, from one gallery or museum to another for a temporary exhibition there, and then they just go straight back again. Mm, that's the usual. It's, it is slightly unusual. It's, it's getting more common for this sort of arrangement to happen, and museums are trying to um, work in partnership much more than they used to, and particular national museums have been asked by the government to work with local museums. But even things like acquisitions are now changing. Um, in the past, traditionally, of course, a museum would be given things or it would buy works of art, even now, museums are working together, starting to work together to even acquire things in, say, a tripartite way. Mm. So a painting may cost you an arm and a leg. If three museums are able to buy it and share that acquisition, it can spend so many months in one, move to another, then move to another, and a large percentage of the population can get to see it. The cost has been shared, and it's secure within the public um, framework of museums. So it's, it's there for the nation. Mm. Speaking of being there for the nation... Um a small percentage of the nation is no doubt listening. And uh, would, from the, all the wonderful things you've been talking about, um, I'd like to go and investigate further. Um, so what, what sort of um, opening hours does the museum keep? And uh, most importantly, how much does it cost? <laughs> well, the main museum and art gallery um, is open five days a week, ten till five every day. It closes for just a couple of days each year, Christmas Day being one of them, which will soon be happening, of course. Um, it's free. All our museums are free. Um, people do get confused about free access to museums and think that the government imposed this on museums a couple of years ago. They imposed it on national museums. Independent museums, council museums like our own, can choose to charge if they want to. But this council, I'm very pleased to say, gives free access to its museums. So the main art gallery there, free. The Red Lodge, Georgian House and Blaze Museums are also free. Also open 10 till 5, but they're closed on Thursdays and Fridays. Open every other day of the week. And uh, the Industrial Museum down in the docks has just been closed for complete refurbishment. I've just come from there this morning. All the displays have been dismantled and taken down. It's just an empty shell very nearly. And uh, it'll reopen in 2009 as a new museum telling more clearly the history and story of the city of Bristol. Yes, I actually wanted to ask you a little bit about that because uh, I, never, I never actually made it to the Industrial Museum. Uh -huh. uh, it shames me to say. <laughs> but um, I mean, I'm sure the people, who, you know, freshers this year who wouldn't necessarily have had the opportunity to go and see what was there. So how much of what was in there is going to be there after the redevelopment? And for that matter, what's going to be new? 
Well, we're still in the stages of really batting ideas around. Um, the principles behind the new museum are that it should, be, it should tell the story of people. It's using artefacts and objects to tell people's stories. And another little catchphrase we've picked up on is that we want the museum to be a museum of memories as well. So there'll be a lot, we hope, of people's memories in there, not just currently, but also back in time. So, um, you know, if we have artefacts that tell us about how um, Romans thought and behaved in, in uh, sea mills, then we might be able to use their words to illustrate Roman artefacts, um, and similarly throughout time. And um, that will be quite a change to the, to the old industrial museum, which was a focus upon here are big lumps of machinery or big bits of transport that were constructed in the city. Um, you know, admire it for what it is. We'll also be doing much more about the stories behind those artefacts, who made them, who was at home cooking the dinner, what was life like for those people, what was it like to use them. And uh, using our fantastic collection of um, photographs that we have, for example, um, doing what we call digital stories, interviewing people, um, either with oral history tape or, or even with video these days, and recording those um, memories, putting them into the museum. And we hope it'll be pretty interactive, that um, anybody will be able to go into the museum and leave your memory. And um, it may be your um, experience of the visit to the museum. We're kicking around ideas about um, um, recording and leaving your memories of what it's like to live in Bristol, your, your experience, say, of being a student here has been, that sort of thing. So we can build up this big bank of knowledge and information about what it's like to be in this city. Excellent. One of the key things about the old museum were its working exhibits, the, the dockside railway that runs up and down between the SS Great Britain and the old museum, and our working boats, and we certainly hope they will still continue to give a real experience to ride on a steam engine and get a trip around the docks as part of your visit to the museum. Hmm. And that all opens in 2009, you say? That's the plan, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for talking to us and telling us... Uh, little bit about uh, some of the city's museums. That's a pleasure. And uh, yes, I uh, very much encourage any of our listeners out there who haven't been to uh, go along to the uh, city museum. Um, I haven't been there in a little while, but the exhibition I went to at the time was really quite interesting. It was all about uh, Brunel and uh, its uh, structures and past as well. Great. So. Yeah, excellent. I would recommend it as well.